Welcome to Mars Messina Presents. Today is episode six, and the date is May 15th, 2021. And today's topic is I Spy, Private Investigator, Secret Agent, Detective, uh, Gumshoe. And there's probably, probably a few more descriptive names for this type of work. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So it's a subject near and dear to my heart, which you will surmise as we go along here. Um, Private investigators, they are hired for services that traditional law enforcement cannot or won't do for various reasons, or in addition to or to supplement an investigation. So we're all aware of James Bond and Batman, two of my favorite detectives, but that's kind of not how the real world works, unfortunately. I wish gadgets like that were feasibly handled and owned, but they're, they're not. So let's talk about a real-world private investigator. They are fact-finders, and by fact-finding, I mean they're into research, interviewing, surveillance, and reporting. So the research phase includes but is not limited to obtaining legal records, diving into somebody's family history, and doing background checks. So what they're doing is they're trying to find facts that are pertinent to a case. And interviewing, who are they interviewing? Well, they're interviewing relatives of people who are, are the subject of their tale, um, their detail. They're interviewing friends, workmates, neighbors, and other people who may have been in contact with missing individuals, for example. They interview witnesses to a crime, and even the subject of the investigation will often be interviewed. Surveillance, so the subject is being watched without being aware of it, hopefully. This is covert operation. You don't want to blow your cover. So the subject is being video recorded. Photos are being taken and they are being followed. So the private investigator collects info and evidence that can be presented in court. And then after that, the private investigator gathers all of that intelligence and reports these findings to the client, and if applicable, to the police or the FBI. So what kind of personality comprises a private investigator? Well, the skills that you should have already are um, critical thinking and problem-solving skills, attention to detail, diligence, big one, Problem solving, obviously. Confidentiality. 
computer and technology skills, knowledge of laws and regulations, self-defense, concealed carry, and that could be a firearm or it could be a coubaton or mace, something to help protect yourself if you need to. And most of all, patience. I'm going to get into some of this in a moment why you need these skills. So the qualifications of being a private investigator um, differ state by state. Each state has different requirements, but most mandate a license and they want your finger your fingerprints on record as well with the state. Some investigators take college courses or they get a degree in criminal justice, but it's not needed. You basically learn on the job, whether you have that degree or not. The degree kind of gives you a good background, but learning on the job, that, that is the job. Now, people have a fascination with um, private eyes because it's a position of power that judges what is white, black, and gray. So it's very powerful. Um, there's elements of danger to the job. And there's suspense and mystery. These are all things that people are fascinated with. But let me tell you, 98% of the time, the work is boring. And nothing is happening, or you're just doing logistical work. It's that other 2% of the time that has the potential of danger and excitement. And it's the 2% of the time that people are, are attracted to. But it's that 98%. It's, very, it's drudgery. And finally, I'd like to say, in speaking generally about private investigators. They are private citizens. They are not law enforcement, so they do not enjoy legal privilege. Now, they may have software that um, <clears throat> that can do background checks that are beyond what you can find on the internet. I mean, well, I used to work as a private investigator, and I'll get into that in a moment. But when I, had, when I was a card-carrying secret agent, I had access to software where I could tell every single car you ever had. I knew every single place where you lived and who you were married to. I could find out everything about you. There was nothing I couldn't find out when I had this, this robust um, software when I did my investigations. So I wasn't exactly Batman or James Bond with the cool cars and the nifty uh, weaponry, but I had some pretty cool gadgetry that um, gave me a power differential. So when I was working as a private investigator, um, and I'm gonna get into how that all happened, but my colleagues were mostly um, undercover cops and undercover cops try as they might they stand out like a sore thumb so I actually did not like working with them I didn't feel safer with them because I felt like our cover was being blown because there's just a way to them there's a way they walk and the way they act and talk and 
Like if I go into a store, I know who's an undercover cop, even though they're pretending to be a shopper. I'm like, no, 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 you're doing surveillance. I know it. So anyway, I had to work with some of these guys and I would sit around and talk to them sometimes and they would just tell random stories about some of their experiences doing private investigation work. So I'm going to share a few now. There's some really long ones. I'm going to keep those out because we only have a half hour, but um, these are pretty funny. Most of them are pretty funny. So um, this one guy was telling me there that he was surveilling um, this man. So there's this couple that was divorcing, and his wife the, or the wife um, who, who was the client of this colleague of mine, um, she suspected her husband was taking some of her items and putting them, excuse me for saying this but he was putting them well up his rear end so she was suspecting that that's what he was doing and she wanted this private investigator to find out if that was the case so this man was put under video surveillance and um the video conveyed indeed that he was doing that fun Another story I heard, um, there was a healthcare worker being watched over because she um, was reportedly so disabled that she couldn't work. So the spy followed her one night to a strip club where she did her thing. Except the club prohibited video recording, so the spy had to appear in court to testify that he saw her dancing. So there's a lot of stories like this. A lot of times um, employers will hire private investigators to check out employees who are on um, workman's comp to make sure they really are disabled. And, you know, sometimes you catch them, you know, playing basketball or dancing or doing something that they said they could not do. So interesting. Um, we get a lot of those. Someone hired an investigator to spy on his cat, to record the cat and to report on it. And we, we weren't sure why, because we were like, well, maybe the cat is getting fat and he's not, he's got him on a diet, so he's wondering why the cat's getting fat. It wasn't even anything like that. It was just like a paranoia thing. He just wanted his cat put under surveillance. Uh, yeah, it, you know, you take the job that's given to you. Let's see. And uh, one PI mainly served court notices, which for obvious reasons, people try to dodge. So this guy would do anything to serve papers. He would use disguises. He would force the papers on people, like shoving them down their shirts and running away. Um, yeah, anything to, to, uh, to get these people to take their papers. But he's now out of it because he had too many close calls <clears throat> serving people with divorce papers. And these people would go into a rage 
um, once they were served their divorce papers. So um, it was, it got too violent for him. (laughs) It got too dangerous because they would take it out on him. So he got out of that. Uh, Another PI I know was hired to follow another investigator who consequently was hired to follow him. So somebody must have had a lot of money to burn or was obsessed with the comic Spy versus Spy because that's what was going on. Um... Hmm. Another story. Uh, someone tried to hire a PI to kidnap a child. Yep. So there was this uh, poor child who was caught up in a horrible custody battle. And one parent violated a court order. And the other parent was just rather volatile. And the client was a family member of this little family So the PI had to take time to explain why kidnapping was not a good idea. And I'll just share one more story now. This one, um, I'm just sending out a trigger warning because this is not funny. Uh, This is pretty serious and it's sensitive. So just give me a minute. Either turn down the volume or run and get yourself a drink and come right back and I should be done with the story. I'm going to give you a second to do that. Okay, here we go. So a woman was suspecting her husband of cheating on her while she was at work. And uh, the PI wired her home with hidden nanny cams all over the house. And a few days later, the PI comes back to gather the footage. And he discovered that the husband was um, inappropriately touching their eight-year-old daughter. So the PI, once he saw that, he rushed the footage to the courthouse to obtain an emergency court order for the police to arrest him. So sometimes our job turns out to be very needed, like in that situation. Thank heaven. Thank heaven that woman hired the PI. Now, sometimes in those cases, you know, when you hear something horrible like that, um, the the family doesn't the family doesn't pursue the case wives don't pursue cases against their husbands but in this case she did the right thing so anyway um moving along here um how did i get into it so i was about to graduate college and i had all this experience with video equipment and filmmaking and you know, reality started to set in, like, who's going to hire me straight out of college with the knowledge I have? So this is back in the day when we would still get the phone book, that that uh, thick yellow phone book. And so I just started going through the yellow pages, like, who would hire a videographer, you know? And I um, I went from A to Z, but I came upon private investigation and I'm like, oh, how cool, you know, in my 20 something little mind, I'm, you know, the sky's the limit when you're that age. So I'm like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this. This might be really interesting. So I find this dude, he was down in uh, the Bridgeport area of Chicago and he had a storefront office 
So you could walk right past his office and it's big windows and he's just sitting there alone, guy in his 60s. And I walk into his office and I see this screen behind him and it's like 10 different images of me. And I'm looking around and I don't see any cameras. So I say to him, hi, sir, I'm, you know, I'm about to graduate college and I would like to do video surveillance for you because I know a lot about video. And he's like, oh, really? He, he goes, you see, I have you, you know, captured on my image here. And I'm like, yeah, you have like 10 different cameras. And he goes, why don't you go through the office and try to find those cameras? And so like I found a little lens in like a plant, like sitting on a leaf. I found another one in the middle of a clock. I found one um, on a package of cigarettes. Like he had these little lens, tiny little cameras just hidden all over the place. And I was just going around the office trying to find them. And he was he was kind of looking at me, not not salaciously. He was like looking at me intently. And he says to me, you know, you would be a really good decoy. And I'm like, what's a decoy? And so mainly he had me working on infidelity cases where women would hire me to catch their husbands cheating. And you can't do... Um, you can't do an entrapment thing, like you can't flirt with the guy. But if he flirts with you, you're kind of open to it. And you just try to find out as much information as you possibly can. So <laughs> they had me wired. So my boss would be in a van, like maybe two minutes away from me, wherever I was. And maybe I'd be sitting in a bar and some guy would start talking to me. And it was weird how much information people were giving me. People were giving me their social security numbers. They were giving me the account numbers to their, um, to their utilities. Um, they were telling me way too much stuff. And I was always coming up with an excuse for it, but, um, and, and they bought it. So I would find out all kinds of things about all kinds of guys. Um, one day, um, there is this guy that I followed all day long. He didn't even know. He had no idea I was following him. In fact, my boss was following him too. Um, but this woman had hired us and he was <clears throat> like <clears throat> white collar um, CEO type of guy. And I was sitting in the lobby of his office building because he was coming down for lunch and we were going to follow him wherever he went for lunch. And so my boss is across, <laughs> across the lobby, and I'm sitting on a couch. And I have a picture of this guy, so I kind of know what he looks like. And one of my friends sees me, because it turns out she worked in the building. She comes over, hey, Mary, you know, and she's sitting and, and talking with me. And I say to her, you know, at some point, this is cool that you're sitting and talking to me, but at some point, um, I'm going to probably just get up and leave because... I've got someone under surveillance. And she thought that was so cool. And I'm like, so don't think I'm rude if I just get up and leave. She's like, who are you following? And I'm like, I can't tell you. This is a covert operation. So anyway, um, the guy shows up. And my boss gives me the nod. And we follow him out. 
Now, I end up having to get into my car to follow this dude. He was with another gentleman, but they had a long lunch. So you go and have lunch when he's having lunch. So um, they went to some, I forgot where we were. I think we were at, uh, we had some steakhouse and, um, and I had to order lunch and my boss had to pay for it. So I could watch this guy. And then they went and saw a movie in the afternoon. So I got to go in and and see a movie. Now, um, it's really hard to tail somebody. It's very easy to lose them. But I I had them because they were just going within a few blocks. But I I had like changes of clothes with me in the car. So I would like put on a different, you know, a different shirt color or I put on a hat. And so I could get on foot and, and follow these guys. So then after the movie, my subject, he parts from his friend and he drives all the way out to the airport. And I followed him to the airport. My boss was, you know, following with us too. And at some point I lost him, but my boss picked him up. And apparently he was meeting a woman at a hotel near the airport. Um, Most of these cases do not end in divorce, apparently. So we gave the surveillance to this woman who had hired us, and um, she didn't divorce him. She used it as leverage in their marriage, and we found that to be the case in almost every case, that women who've hired us to uh, watch their husbands cheat, if they were cheating, um, they were using it as leverage, like to spend money or whatever, or to keep them you know, from leaving her. Um, and the men who hired us to watch their wives or girlfriends, oftentimes, um, they didn't have a case. I would say most of the time that I watched women, they weren't cheating. And if they were, the men also would not get divorced. Really kind of an interesting dynamic. And I started to not like doing this because I just felt so creepy, um, I was stalking people and they didn't know. And it made me think like, man, if I could stalk people all day long and they have no idea, somebody could do that to me, you know? And I just felt really dirty and creepy. And after doing this for a while, I was even thinking of asking my boss to give me a different type of job or that I would just quit. But anyway, um, so that's how my, my thinking was going when one day my boss called me. Now he had been gone for a couple weeks. He said he was working on a case. So he left me his whole case load in Chicago. And he's like, I have to go out of state and go under surveillance. And he goes, I'll be gone for a while. So I was doing all of his work. So anyway, um, he comes back into town and he calls me and he's like, where are you? And I just happened to be in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago. And he said, okay. He goes, there's a a coffee shop on the corner of this street and this street. Why don't you meet me there? So I did. And he was sitting there. He was already there by the time I got there. And um, now this guy, um, just so you know, um, okay, so he's probably in his 60s. He was a retired Chicago police captain. And um, once he retired, he couldn't just go out and golf. 
he he needed to even though that was his plan, but he, he said he just needed to keep working. And he said detective work was in his blood. And that's why he was doing what he was doing, rather than taking it easy. So he said, Well, Mary, he goes, um, you've done a great job, but we've come to the end of the line. He goes, I'm closing up shop. And I'm like, why? And he goes, Well, you know, that case I was on, that brought me out of state. And I said, Yeah. And he goes, um, that was my wife, she was cheating on me. And I'm like, come on, dude, no, who would cheat on you? And he goes, yep. He's like, that's 35 years of marriage and three kids down the tubes. And he goes, I'm, I'm done. He goes, I'm hanging this all up. He goes, I'm moving to Wisconsin and I'm going to golf for the rest of my life. So captain, I don't know if you're still alive. You probably are, but I hope you're having a wonderful life. He was such a sweet guy. Anyway, um, that's how that part of the story comes to an end. Now, I went on to do some other freelance work and teaching in my video film career. And then my brother-in-law, of all people, he opens up a private investigation agency and he has me work for him. Now, when we first started this, um, he goes, I'm going to call you Agent 99, and you got to call me Chief. Now, I had actually missed the reference. I said, Agent 99, that sounds really cool. Well, th thank you for giving me that, that name, but I got to call you Chief. Well, I didn't get the Get Smart reference because even though I knew about the show, I had never watched it. So... Um, when I was telling people what my name was, um, Agent 99, people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, get smart, Barbara Felden, or whatever her name is. And so I was like, okay, I got the reference. And um, Jim, um, he grew up, you know, watching all the James Bond movies. In fact, his, his nickname is 007. And he was watching Get Smart and Batman, and he was into all of that. And he had a lifelong fascination with private investigation. And he became a private investigator, and I worked for him. And um, there are so many stories that I cannot, I cannot, um, I would probably fill a couple hours talking about my stories working for my brother-in-law. But anyway, I'll, I'll tell one. Um, <laughs> so this is one actually Jim didn't send me on this case he um it was the vice president of the company his partner she sent me on this case so it was again an infidelity case and I had to go way way out into the south suburbs of Chicago and it was like a a trailer home park but these trailer homes they weren't like the backwoods, you know, trailer, trashy looking trailers. They looked like regular houses. They were nicer and they were like in a gated community. So I was hired to by a man to check out to see what time his wife came home at night because the, I guess their arrangement was, um, you know, he had to work and his wife got out of work around three o'clock to pick up their son. So she should be home, you know, by four or five. But she was getting home late. And he was wondering why. 
Um, so he suspected that she was cheating. So I couldn't get into the gated community. Um, so I had to watch the gate from across the street, which was on a really, really busy road that had no lights on it whatsoever. And it was raining that night. So this was not optimal. I had to pull off to the shoulder of the road across the street and put my hazards on. Um, so already I'm sticking out like a sore thumb. You know, like I didn't want people driving up to me <laughs> and asking if I needed help. Um, so I had to come up with a backstory of why I was sitting there, um, just in case anyone asked. So anyway, I was sitting, you know, I had to get there at three in the afternoon. Well, it was, and this guy got home from work at seven in the evening and at 6.30, I see her pulling up. So I have her description, the car, what she looks like. She's pulling up and she pulls into the gate. But before she goes into the gate, she runs out of the car and she throws um, a bag into the garbage can, gets back into the car. And I could see a little head like next to her. So she had her son with her. And then they wave to the, um, to the gate attendant and they go in. So here's me getting out of my car, running across this busy street, dodging out all these cars, and it is raining, and it is dark, and I run up to the garbage can, and I, before the gate attendants could stop me, I reach into the garbage can, I pick out the, the bag that she threw in, and I ran back to my car, and I speed away, and um, I drove maybe a couple miles before I pulled into a gas station and I'm calling, you know, Jim's, um, assistant. And I, I said, I, you know, I have something here and I looked into the bag and it was a pair of panties. And I said, Oh my God, I've got her panties. This is so disgusting. And I threw them <laughs> into the, um, the, the passenger side, like car well, whatever you call it, where the feet go. Um, and I sent those in for forensic reasons. And turns out she was cheating on him. I won't go into the details of how we found that out, excepting, except to say that I found her panties. And before um, I stopped talking about Jim and working with him. Um, one thing that I did do for him, now he was uh, a real advocate and angel for missing children. So I was writing um, articles for his newsletters. And specifically, um, he was working on the case of Diamond and Tianda Bradley, a 10-year-old and a three-year-old. They were sisters. They went missing on um, July of 2001, and they still have not been found. Well, Jim took that that job on. Um, he didn't charge the mother. He, he didn't charge her a dime because she didn't have that kind of money, but he really wanted to find those little girls. Um, and there have been sightings of them. Um, they have, you know, there haven't been corpses recovered, so a lot of people think they're still alive. And even Jim thought that even though, you know, the mother and other family members were very upset that these girls were gone, 
he felt like they knew something and they were holding back from him. And a lot of law enforcement felt the same, that the family knew something and they weren't saying it. So, um, you know, and, and I worked for him for about a year and then I didn't do it anymore. So that story is to be continued because who knows, maybe I'll, I'll try it again. But um, unfortunately, I lost my brother-in-law about four years ago. Um, he died way too soon. He had cancer. And so now for bedtime stories for the acoustic bookshelf. In honor of my late great brother-in-law, 007, I would like to read an abbreviated excerpt from the book, Sherlock Holmes, The Hound of the Baskervilles, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is for you, Jim. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, who was usually very late in the mornings, save upon those not infrequent occasions when he stayed up all night, was seated at the breakfast table. I stood upon the hearth rug and picked up the stick which our visitor had left behind him the night before. It was a fine, thick piece of wood, bulbous-headed, of the sort which is known as a Penang lawyer. Just under the head was a broad silver band, nearly an inch across. To James Mortimer, MRCS, from his friends of the CCH, was engraved upon it with the date 1884. It was just such a stick as the old-fashioned family practitioner used to carry, dignified, solid, and reassuring. Well, Watson, what do you make of it? Holmes was sitting with his back to me, and I had given him no sign of my occupation. How did you know what I was doing? I believe you have eyes in the back of your head. I have at least a well-polished, silver-plated coffee pot in front of me, said he. But tell me, Watson, what do you make of our visitor's stick? Since we have been so unfortunate as to miss him and have no notion of his errand, this accidental souvenir becomes of importance. Let me hear you reconstruct the man by an examination of it. I think, said I, following so far as I could the methods of my companion, that Dr. Mortimer is a successful elderly medical man, well-esteemed, since those who know him give him this mark of their appreciation. Good, said Holmes. Excellent. I think also that the probability is in his favor, is in favor of his being a country practitioner who does a great deal of visiting on foot. Why so? Because this stick, though originally a very handsome one, has been so knocked about that I can hardly imagine a town practitioner carrying it. The thick iron ferrule is worn down, so it is evident that he has done a great amount of walking with it. 
perfectly sound, said Holmes. And then again, there is the Friends of the CCH. I should guess that to be a something hunt, the local hunt to whose members he has possibly given some surgical assistance and which has made him a small presentation in return. Really, Watson, you excel yourself, said Holmes, pushing back his chair and lighting a cigarette. I am bound to say that in all the accounts which you have been so good as to give of my own small achievements, you have habitually underrated your own abilities. It may be that you are not yourself luminous, but you are a conductor of light. Some people without possessing genius have a remarkable power of stimulating it. I confess, my dear fellow, that I am very much in your debt. He had never said as much before, and I must admit that his words gave me keen pleasure, for I had often been piqued by his indifference to my admiration and to the attempts which I had made to give publicity to his methods. I was proud, too, to think that I had so far mastered his system as to apply it in a way which earned his approval. He now took the stick from my hands and examined it for a few minutes with his naked eyes. Then, with an expression of interest, he laid down his cigarette and, carrying the cane to the window, he looked over it again with a convex lens. Interesting, though elementary, said he, as he returned to his favorite corner of the settee. There are certainly one or two indications upon the stick. It gives us the basis for several deductions. Has anything escaped me, I said with some self-importance. I trust that there is nothing of consequence which I have overlooked. I am afraid, my dear Watson, that most of your conclusions were erroneous. When I said that you stimulated me, I meant, to be frank, that in noting your fallacies, I was occasionally guided toward the truth. Not that you were entirely wrong in this instance. The man is certainly a country practitioner, and he walks a good deal. Then I was right, to that extent. But that was all. No, no, my dear Watson, not all. By no, all, by no means all. I would suggest, for example, that a presentation to a doctor is more likely to come from a hospital than a haunt, and that when the initial CC are placed before that hospital, the words Charing Cross very naturally suggest themselves. You may be right. The probability lies in that direction. And if we take this as a working hypothesis, we have a fresh basis from which to start our construction of this unknown visitor. Well then, 
supposing that CCH does stand for Charing Cross Hospital? What further inferences may we draw? Do none suggest themselves? You know my methods. Apply them. I can only think of the obvious conclusion that the man has practiced in town before going to the country. I think that we might venture a little farther than this. Look at it in this light. On what occasion would it be most probable that such a presentation would be made? When would his friends unite to give him a pledge of their goodwill? Obviously, at the moment when Dr. Mortimer withdrew from the service of the hospital in order to start in practice for himself. We know there has been a presentation. We believe that there has been a change from a town hospital to a country practice. Is it then stretching our inference too far to say that the presentation was on the occasion of the change? It certainly seems probable. Now, you will observe that he could not have been on the staff of the hospital since only a man well-established in a London practice could hold such a position and such a one would not drift into the country. What was he then? If he was in the hospital and yet not on the staff, he could only have been a house surgeon or a house physician, little more than a senior student. He left five years ago. The date is on the stick. So your grave middle-aged family practitioner vanishes into thin air, my dear Watson, and there emerges a young fellow under 30, amiable, unambitious, absent-minded, and the possessor of a favorite dog, which I should describe roughly as being larger than a terrier and smaller than a mastiff. I laughed incredulously as Sherlock Holmes leaned back in his settee and blew little wavering rings of smoke up to the ceiling. As to the latter part, I have no means of checking you, said I but at least it is not difficult to find out a few particulars about the man's age and professional career. Said Holmes with a mischievous smile, but a country doctor, as you very astutely observed, I think that I am fairly justified in my inferences. As to the adjectives, I said, if I remember right, amiable, unambitious, and absent-minded. It is my experience that it is only an amiable man in this world who receives testimonials, only an unambitious one who abandons a London career for the country, and only an absent-minded one who leaves his stick and not his visiting card after waiting an hour in your room. And the dog? has been in the habit of carrying the stick to his master. Being a heavy stick, the dog has held it tightly by the middle, and the marks of his teeth are very plainly visible. The dog's jaw, as shown in the space between the marks, 
is too broad, in my opinion, for a terrier and not broad enough for a mastiff. It may have been... Yes, by Jove, it is a curly-haired spaniel. He had risen and paced the room as he spoke. Now he halted in the recess of the window. There was such a ring of conviction in his voice that I glanced up in surprise. My dear fellow, how can you possibly be so sure of that? To find out what happens next, read Sherlock Holmes, The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Until next week, same bat time, same bat channel. Buona notte.